today we'll be reading 2 Corinthians 8, 9 and 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one of you must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. This is the word of our Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. I also want to welcome those of you that are on YouTube live right now. Thank you for joining us. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Corinthians. We're looking at chapter 8 and 9, just a couple verses in uh, each one of those chapters. Out of those four verses we just read, two of those are my absolutely favorite verses in the whole Bible. I mean that with all sincerity. I say that every week, don't I? Okay, they're my favorite, at least for this week, but maybe a little bit beyond that. These are really powerful verses. In fact, what you're gonna find out is one of the best definitions for grace in one of the verses out of these four, and then the, one of the other verses is gonna show you how that grace works its way out in our life in a really powerful way. And so that's, if you get your Bibles, you can turn there to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and we'll jump over to chapter 9. Four verses we're looking at here. God's amazing promises for when you are generous. Let's start off by asking you a question. This is a pop quiz time. If you've taken our DB Life or if you've been with us for any length of time, you know that we have a 5G process. So here's my question for you. Ask the person next to you, see if they can answer this question. What is our third G? So we've got 5G process of full devotion to Christ. What is our third G in our 5G process of full devotion to Jesus Christ here at Desert Reef? Turn to the person next to you and see if they know what the third G is. Okay, did you guys get that? What do you, what do you guys think it is? Yell it out to me. It's giving. You guys got it. You guys are all over it. Here's another question. By the way, these are the questions that are on your growing notes. I would encourage you each week that when you do a Bible study here on weekend service, go through the growing notes so that you can drive that truth deeper into your heart. We have actually have some small groups that go through those growing notes week in and week out. Here's the second question from our growing notes. Why do you think that a giving, and the fourth G is a going, why do you think a giving and a going Christian will be the natural overflow of a genuine, I'm sorry, yeah, that's right. Okay, let me say it again. <laughs> Hang in there with me, okay? This is gonna be a fun, uh, fun day here. So why do you think a giving and going Christian will be the natural overflow of a genuine and growing Christian? So the first two G's are genuine, growing, then you've got giving and going. Why do you think giving and going is a natural overflow of genuine and growing? That's a, that's a good question. It should be the natural overflow. So you've got genuine Christian, growing Christian, giving Christian, going Christian into the world, proclaiming the gospel, all for God's glory. Here's the next question. Why do you think a generous lifestyle, giving your time, talent, and treasure, is a mark of a healthy Christian? Well, all of those are answered in our thesis statement. Look at the thesis statement on your notes, at the top of the notes. You have been generously loved, therefore you can and will love generously. 
So you and I have been generously loved by God. That's what we're talking about here. That's the first part of our notes. And then in the second part, you'll see, therefore, you can, you have the capacity, you have the ability, and in fact, you will. You can't help but want to love generously. When you bask in the reality of his generous love for you, oh my goodness, it makes all the difference in, in the world. Now, let me give you a little background. Anytime you study a, a text, you need to know the context. And uh, so when you study the scriptures, there's kind of three steps to understanding God's word. Biblical interpretation, hermeneutics, that's what it's called. Observation, interpretation, application. Before you get to the application, you gotta know the, you gotta do the observation. What is it saying? What does it mean? That's observation, interpretation before you take the application. Here's a little bit of observation and some interpretation. The background here, Paul is writing in 2 Corinthians chapters eight and nine, which are the two most significant, powerful chapters in the New Testament for generosity or forgiving. And so Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 concerning the financial offering the Corinthian church is taking for the destitute believers in Jerusalem. Now listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verses 7 through 8, just to give you a little background here. This is what he's saying to the people there in the church in Corinth. But as you excel in everything, this is what I want for you, I want you to excel in everything, in faith, in in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness. Man, I want you to have a fire in your heart for Christ and his love. And in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace and generosity also. He's talking about generosity. And then he says in verse eight, I say this not as a command, I'm not commanding you to do this, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. So, so that kind of helps us to understand this idea that you can, you can give without loving, you can give all day without loving, but you can't love without giving. So if you really love, you're going to give. That's what we see with God. He gives to us, we give to others. That's just a natural overflow of our life. Hey, before we head into our notes, let's just take a moment. Let's bow our heads. Let's ask for God's help as we unpack this and apply this to our lives so that we can better understand it. So, Father, we're so thankful to be here today. We love you. We love spending time with you corporately. We love worshiping you in song and worshiping you in the study of your word. You loved us so much that you gave your only son to die in our place for our sins so that all who believe in him would have a life and a relationship with you beyond our wildest dreams. Show us how generously loved we are by you so that we can and will love generously. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful and glorious name and everyone said, amen. So let's take a look at that first one. You have been generously loved. I just wanna kind of bask in the reality of his love for us here this morning. Now, 2 Corinthians 8 9, I believe, is one of the best definitions of grace. If someone asks you, what is grace? Send them to 2 Corinthians 8 9. It's a beautiful definition because this is what he says. For you know the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He says, oh, well, what is it? Here it is. He's going to define it for us. For you know the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. That's powerful. That's, that's really a great, great definition of grace. Now, if you really want to understand grace, you need to understand grace in light of justice, mercy, and grace. So justice is getting what you deserve. You guys following me on that? Would you agree with that? Okay, so justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting 
what you don't deserve. So quite a number of years ago, I was mowing my lawn, weed eating, front lawn. My mother-in-law drives up in her classic Cadillac, parks it in our driveway. And I continued to weed eat and continued to mow the lawn. I should have gone in and said, hey, you know what, I'm, gonna, I'm getting ready to weed eat here, so I need to move your car to the side because I don't want any damage to take place. But I was, uh, I was in too big of a hurry and decided to go ahead and weed eat anyway. And as I'm weed eating, I'm going, ping, threw a rock up, popped the side window of her classic Cadillac car. So I went inside and said, hey, uh, Nan, uh, there were some kids playing in the front uh, yard. <laughs> I didn't say that. I didn't even think that. I just was, I just fessed up. I just go, hey, listen, I should have moved your car, but man, I just damaged the window in your car with my weed eater. Sorry. And, uh, and so, so in, in justice, if she would have treated me with justice, I would have paid for it. Justice is getting what you deserve. But she was merciful. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. In fact, mercy goes a little bit deeper. Mercy actually, not just, it's not only not getting what you deserve, but it's actually a deep affection for someone. That's when it talks about God's mercy, he's got deep affection for us. We don't get what we deserve, but we have this deep affection for us. And so uh, she ended up paying for it. And, but, but grace would be, uh, not only did she pay for it, but I was allowed to continue uh, to be married to her daughter. And then she would take me out for a steak dinner. That would be grace. Now, she never took me out for a steak dinner, but I'm still married to her daughter, okay? I can still be her son-in-law. And, and so that would be grace. That would be an understanding of grace. So mercy, uh, so justice getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. So injustice, we deserve death to be eternally separated from God. Our sin has separated us from God. The Bible's very clear about that. But in mercy, God has such deep affection for us, we don't get what we deserve. We don't get death. But in grace, we wonderfully get life. <laughs> we get relationship with God. Now, grace is, is absolutely stunning. It's beautiful. When I began to understand this, it was life transforming for me. And I think a lot of people don't really understand the grace of God. And in this verse where it says, for you know the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the word grace here in the Greek, the New Testament was written in the Koine Greek, everyday Greek language. And so the Greek means goodwill, loving kindness, or unearned favor, having God's favor in our life. I'm gonna call it generous love. It's his generous love. And, um, and so grace is God's generous love. And, and I wanna walk you through kind of a way to measure this so that we can kind of bask in the reality of his generous love for us or his grace. Generous love is measured by three indicators. There's three ways that you can measure his generous love for us. First, the identity of the lover. The greater the lover, the greater the love. The second way to measure his generous love is the object of that love. That's the second one, the object of that love. The lesser the object, the greater the love. And then the third way is the expression of that love. The greater the expression, the greater the love. Let's take each one of those one by one. So first of all, the identity of the lover. The greater the lover, the greater the love. Look at verse nine once again. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
that though he was rich, that's an understatement, by the way, he was rich, are you kidding me? He's a creator of the universe, come on. I mean, he's just saying, though he was rich. So our concept of God determines the quality of our relationship with God. Many people see God as a taker rather than a giver. They think that if they give their life to God, they will lose more than they gain. That's insane. This is a lie that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. If the serpent can't get you to doubt God's existence, listen to me, he'll try to get you to doubt God's goodness, that somehow he's holding out on you, and if you surrender your life to him, you're going to lose more than you gain. That's not true. You will gain much more than you will ever give up or lose. That's the whole Bible. That's the whole point of the Bible, is that he came to rescue us, to redeem us, to reconcile us to God. And so it's just absolutely amazing. Now, let me give you an example of this idea of understanding the identity of the lover. The greater the lover, the greater the love. Uh, David does such a beautiful job of this in Psalm chapter 8. John, John chapter, or, or Psalm chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. Listen to what he says. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the stars and the moon, how you have set them in place. See this high view of God that he's got? What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? So, so you can see that in those verses that he understands that God is, God is transcendent and yet he's imminent. He's powerful. Yet he's personal. He's great. He's indescribably great. And, and yet at the same time, he is unimaginably good. And he, what he's describing here is the humans are specks of dust and the vastness of the universe, yet we fill the mind and the heart of God. That's crazy. That's, that's unbelievable. So the greater the lover, the greater the love. Here's the second way to measure God's generous love. Number two, second, the object of that love. That, that would be us. The lesser the object, the greater the love. Verse 9, back to verse 9, second part of verse 9b. Yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. The implication is that we are spiritually poor because we're desperately needing to become rich through him, through his poverty. We are glorious image bearers of God gone tragically bad. All of us have rebelled against the God who made us. Romans 3.23 makes that very clear. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In fact, all human problems, I, I know people are kind of scrambling around wondering, what are we gonna do? We got so many problems in this country and on this planet. I can tell you why we have all these problems. I can sum it up for you. The Bible sums it up for us. All human problems are ultimately symptoms and our rebellion and separation from God is the cause. As long as we continue to reject God and rebel against God, we're going to have those problems. That's symptomatic of the fact that we're separated from God. That's why Jesus came, was to reconcile us to the Father. 
to get us back in alignment and right relationship with him. And so in justice, God passed the required sentence of death on our sin and in love took that punishment himself on the cross. Romans 6, 26, the cross shows God's righteousness, that's what this verse says, that he is both just, think about this, he is both just and justifier of those who put their faith in Jesus. John 1, 12, it says, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Becoming a child of God is the highest privilege of the gospel. Unworthy sinners, traitors, guilty of high treason against a holy God, all of us are guilty of that. Unworthy sinners, traitors like you and I are forgiven, brought in for supper, and given the family name. <laughs> that's amazing. That's, that's an understanding of the gospel. He doesn't love us because we are lovable because we've earned it or achieved it. You can't ever earn it or achieve it. We're too far gone. We've messed up that badly. So he doesn't love us because we are lovable, but because he is lovable and wants to make us lovable. So the greater the lover, the greater the love, the lesser the object, the greater the love. Here's the third way to measure God's generous love the expression of that love. What was the expression of that love? I've already talked about it, but let's, let's talk about it more. Can't ever talk about it enough. The greater the expression, the greater the love. Second part of verse nine, once again, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. So God did the most difficult and beautiful thing ima imaginable. God did the most difficult and beautiful thing imaginable to win us back and lavish us with infinite and eternal love by sending his son to rescue us. That's how he became poor. Romans 8, 31 and 32. This, these verses keep coming up. I love these verses. These are also some of my favorite verses, okay? <laughs> okay, the whole Bible's my favorite, okay? Every, every verse in here, but... But if God is for us, who can be against us? He who, did not, he who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? Turn to the person next to you. I've been talking about this for the last few weeks. I've been talking about it for a few years, actually. But, uh, but what is gospel logic? Because that, that verse is giving us some gospel logic. This is the kind of logic I, I share with people when they're going through difficult times. Do you guys remember what gospel logic is based on those verses? Turn to the person next to you and see if they understand what gospel logic is. What is gospel logic? Ask them and see if you, they can answer that question real quick. Okay, you guys, have, you guys know what gospel logic is? Did you notice the word spare? If he didn't spare his own son, what was our worst problem? What was our absolutely worst problem that we could never remedy? We're our sin, sin against God. We're separated from God, death. We're going to face death. We're going to perish apart from God. And there's nothing we could do about it, but he did it for us. So if he didn't spare his own son in taking care of our worst problem, the gospel logic is, listen to me, he won't spare anything else in taking care of you until you, he gets you home to be with him for all eternity. Do you hear that? 
So no matter how dark, how difficult, how devastating it might be in your life, if he didn't spare his own son and taking care of your worst problem, reconciling you to himself once and for all, listen, he won't spare anything else in taking care of you. He's still working, whether you can see him working or not. He loves you that much. If God is for us, who can be against us? What are the odds against you? They can't stand up against God. There's no way. There's absolutely no way. And so he goes, that's why he says, if, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, freely give us all things? You hear the generosity of God? His generous love? If you're reconciled to him by faith in Christ Jesus, because of his grace, he's got you covered. He's going to take care of you. You're going to get through whatever you're going through. That's, that's amazing. That's beautiful. And, um, and so that's part of this Romans 8, 31 and 32. That's what gospel logic is. Now, a couple more questions here to think about. I've already kind of answered this first one. What's the greatest thing God could ever do for you? I answered that for you. This is what I've got on my notes. There's nothing greater that God could do for you than to reconcile you to himself. 2 Corinthians 5, 18. It, it, it says there, God through Christ reconciled us to himself. So we're reconciled. We have a right relationship with God. That's what we needed. He provided that for us. The greatest thing that God could do for us is reconcile us to him. What's the greatest thing that God could give to us? What's the greatest thing that God could give to us? Turn to the person next to you and see if they know the answer to that question. That's an important question. It's not a trick question. How about this one? How about this answer? So if the greatest thing that God could do for us is reconcile us to himself, the greatest Thing that he could give to us is himself. <laughs> he, we have God in our lives. We have him. There's not a better, greater treasure than to have him. He will never, ever leave us or forsake us. We have relationship with God. I'm convinced intimacy with God is life's most satisfying reality. There's nothing, listen to me, there's nothing more satisfying than to know the God of the galaxies, that we fill his mind and heart, as David said in Psalm 8. In the vastness of the universe, what? I fill the mind and the heart of God? Yes. Yes. You can have a relationship with him. You can know him intimately. I mean, I, I got wrecked years ago over that. I mean, I was done. I, I'm done. Game over. I'm going for him. I'm all in. I'm, I'm going to pursue him. And I'm telling you, the older I get, the better it gets. It really does. It sounds crazy. I'm getting more and more broken down the older I get. I'm wearing out. I've got more aches and pains now than I ever thought I'd have. In spite of all my working out and all the trying to eat right, although I eat plenty of sweets, I like that. I'll go to my grave eating sweets. But... Uh, but but I try to do the best I can, but in spite of that, though outwardly we are wasting away inwardly, I am being renewed day by day. And it's, it's absolutely amazing. And so there's intimacy with God is an enchanted reality in this disenchanted world. And so love is measured by, by three, 
three indicators. The creator of the universe loves unworthy sinners like us by sending his son to die in our place for our sins to make us his dearly loved children. I gave you a number of verses here. I mean, we could spend all day just looking at all the verses that emphasize that, you know, really give us that, that love, tells us about the love of God. Romans 8, 35 through 39, it says, nothing can separate us from his love. Nothing. Psalm 63, 3, it says, his steadfast love is better than anything in life. There's nothing better. There's not greater pleasure and satisfaction than his love for us. Psalm 103, 11, this is good. As high as the heavens are above the earth. How high are the heavens above the earth? It's incalculable. He's just saying, my love for you is out of this world. It's incalculable. As high as the heavens are above the earth, how high, how great is his love for us? That's what it tells us, Psalm 1, 103, 11. 1 John 4, 18. His perfect love chases away what? The fear. The fear. fear. The fear. His perfect love chases away the fear. You guys need to learn that. Let me say it again. His perfect love chases away what? All fears, all fears. In fact, the more you're perfected in his love, you're not going to be anxious and angry and worried and stressed out. You know that your life is in his hands. He loves you. He's going to see you through. I'm talking inordinate you know, emotions there. We're all going to have a measure of emotions, but I'm talking that those emotions that take over your life. But if you understand his love, it'll chase away those inordinate emotions, those negative emotions in your life. His perfect love chases away all fears. And let me say it again. This is the love you have been looking for your whole life. This is the love every one of us have been looking for our whole life. There's no friend love or married love or parental love or popular acclaim love that will give you what his love will give you. And once you've tasted of his love, once you've tasted of fellowship with him, you are ruined for anything else. And if you're not, it's because you really haven't had a good taste of his love. And I pray that you get a good taste of that love, even now as we're talking about his love. Before the end of this message, before the end of this day, that you would have an experience of his love on your heart. There's a difference between knowing his love and experiencing his love. It's interesting. Go back to this text. It says, for you know the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That word know is an interesting word. There are two words for know in the Greek. This is the benefit of kind of studying out the Greek a little bit. Uh, the one word for know is oida, O-I-D-A, refers to facts, data, and cognition. Kind of more left brain, more facts. That's oida. Gnosko refers to an, not just left brain, but also right brain. It's, it's an internalized knowledge gained through experience. This word here is gnosko. It's the second one here. So when it says, for you know, it's not just information to you. It's not just a concept. This is a reality to your life. You're experiencing his grace. Gnosko, it's more than information. Left brain, it's more than information about God. Left brain, it's intimacy with God. Right brain. It's one thing to know that God loves you, but it's altogether another thing to experience his love in your heart. You can tell me all day long that you know that God loves you, but have you experienced his love? Are you ravished by his love? 
Do you hear ringing in your soul? You are my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. Our love for God and others increases in direct proportion to our regular and consistent experience of God's generous love for us. When people tell me, oh, I know God, and they can give me a lot of information about God, and yet they don't have love in their heart, they're hateful, they're angry, they're self-righteous, they're holier than thou, they're proud. I know that they don't know the love of God. I know that they haven't experienced the love of God because they wouldn't have that attitude in their heart. I'm telling you, you encounter him, you get to know him, it'll humble you and give you confidence at the same time. It will transform you. I was thinking about, what does that mean? What does that look like? You know, uh, all of us, you know, I'm a, I'm a parent, I'm a grandparent, and there was those times we would tell our kids, we'd let our kids know, and I, I'd let my grandkids know, man, I love you, I love you. But then there's also those times when you sweep them up into your arms and just smother them with kisses. You just ah. I love you. You kiss on them and they go, stop. They push you away. And you don't dare try that when they're high school students, okay? They'll stiff arm you. They'll be like as stiff as an ironing board as you're trying to do that to them. Grandpa. One of my grandsons calls me grumpy. (laughs) I said, don't call me grumpy. I'll show you, I'll show you grumpy. But so they know that we love them, but then from time to time they have an experience of our love for them. We show it to them. It's tangible. You need to have that experience regularly. Do you? Do you take out time out of your busy schedule and get rid of all the distractions and just sit in his presence experiences love. You hear deep in your soul, you are my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. I mean, that, that'll change you. We need that. In our stressful times, in our difficult times, in our anxious times, nothing will chase away the fears like that. God, I know you got me covered. I know you got me. I know you're going to take care of me. I know you love me. And then out of that becomes that overflow of love for others. So I'm able to see how much I'm experiencing his love for me by how much I I love him back and love others. It's kind of the the meter, so to speak. And I can tell when I'm needing some more love from my, my daddy, my father. When I need to go back to him because sometimes I don't, I don't, I'm not very loving. I can be kind of hateful and angry and anxious and all that stuff. I know, man, I need to go back into his love. I need to experience his love. And so you have been generously loved. Therefore, you can and will love generously. Here's the second part. Now, nothing will keep you from God's generous love for you except, except idolatry. Idolatry is loving anything more than you love him. So let's look at 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8. And in one of those verses is my second favorite verse out of these four verses that are our text this weekend. Okay, I mean that with all sincerity. (laughs) It's actually the very last one there because it really demonstrates to us, it shows to us God's grace working in our life. So 2 Corinthians 8, 9 and 9, 8 are, are just two beautiful verses that reflect the grace of God working in our life. So, so look at verses, uh, 2 Corinthians Chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. How will you love generously? You will do it bountifully. Here's your next fill in the blank, bountifully. 
The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Anybody know what he's talking about here? It's called the law of what? Anybody? Yeah, reaping and sowing, sowing and reaping. That's the law that he's talking about here. Here's what, what Paul says about that law. This is an important law. Galatians 6, 7 through 9. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. So I, so, so I know people who are flipping God off. I can do whatever I want to do. You're not going to tell me what to do. <laughs> God cannot be mocked. God cannot be mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. With that attitude, you're sowing some really bad seeds. So if you think you can thumb your nose at God, flip God off, have an attitude towards God, you can't, sorry. Don't be deceived. That's why he says that. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And then he gives us two options here. He says, for the one who sows to his flesh, that would be our sinful nature, rebellion against God, doing our own thing, living for me rather than living for God. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap will from the flesh reap corruption. It's not gonna last, it's not gonna go well. All you gotta do is look around on our planet. There's a lot of corruption going on. It's because we got a lot of people sowing to the flesh, to their own sinful nature. But notice the contrast here. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Right relationship with God, intimacy with God. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Now, here's, here's what I know about the sowing and reaping law. You will always reap what you sow, more than you sow, later than you sow. You'll always reap what you sow. My wife for years has had a garden, not so much lately, the last year or so, but for years she'd always have a garden. But we had something really crazy happen one time. She planted broccoli and we got watermelon. It's the weirdest thing. We do not understand it to this day. No, that never happened. It didn't happen. That's, that's insane. It's not going to happen. You're not going to plant broccoli and hope for watermelon. You're not going to go around and sow a bunch of seeds to the flesh and expect to have the Spirit of God be closer to Him and experience all that He has for you. It's not going to happen. You always reap what you sow, more than you sow. My wife planted zucchini one year. We had so much zucchini, it was coming out my ears. You want zucchini? No, I don't want any more zucchini. You can make that only a few ways, okay? After a while, it gets old. But it was like, just, it did take just a few seeds. Man, there was zucchini coming out of our ears. It's just like, it was crazy. So you reap what you sow, more than you sow. By the way, later than you sow. That's why he says, don't grow weary. Don't grow weary planting those seeds. By the way, I never saw my wife do this. She didn't go out one day and plant the seeds and a couple hours later go out there and see if there was something out there growing. <laughs> Is there any fruit growing? Honey, you just planted them this morning. That would be weird, wouldn't it? But we kind of think that way sometimes when it comes to our life. Well, I've been reading my Bible for like three days in a row. Or, or a week or two weeks, it's like, you keep planting those seeds. Don't grow weary in well-doing because in due season you will reap a harvest if you don't give up. 
So the question isn't, are you sowing? But what are you sowing? And every day you are sowing. Every day you are sowing. And you will reap what you sow more than you sow, later than you sow. What are you sowing? Well, let's, let me give you a couple of examples here. How about your thoughts? Every day you're, you're sowing seeds into your thoughts. Your thoughts, what's going on? That's the reason why the Bible says um, in Philippians 4, 8, it says, whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, if there's anything excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. It also tells us in Proverbs 4, 23, above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. It determines how you do life, how you respond to the circumstances of life. And so if you sow a thought, you reap a habit, you reap a, an instinct, something becomes second nature, becomes a neural pathway. You continue to think about those negative thoughts, whatever it might be, or positive thoughts can be good things. So you sow a thought, you reap a habit, so a habit, reap a character, so a character, reap a destiny. Listen to me, your life is no better or no worse than the thoughts you entertain in your head. So what are you thinking? What are you filling your mind with? If you're on the internet all hours of the day, watching TV programs, watching the news, guess what? You're planting some seeds that might not be very good for you. And you're only spending just a little bit of time in God's word or listening to good teaching or meditating and memorizing God's word. It's gonna make a difference in your life. How about relationships? If you sow lies, distrust, dishonesty, unforgiveness, bitterness, you're gonna reap broken relationships, you're gonna reap death, it's inevitable. What are you sowing into your relationships? If you sow truth, trust, honesty, forgiveness, love, you're gonna reap healthy relationships, life. How about your spiritual life? We kind of talked about that a little bit. Let's talk about spiritual disciplines. If I sow spiritual disciplines, you guys know what spiritual disciplines are? It's what you're doing right now. It's reading your Bible, it's praying, it's going through the growing notes, it's hanging out with other Christians in a small group setting, getting involved in ministry. So if you sow spiritual disciplines plus the work of the Holy Spirit, you will reap strength for hard times. A lot of times we are overwhelmed by the trials of life and overtaken by the temptations of life because of the seeds that we have sown into our life. We haven't practiced spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines plus the work of the Holy Spirit. When we hit hard times, you're gonna have the resources to draw upon. A spiritually undisciplined life will cost you more than a spiritually disciplined life. A spiritually undisciplined life will cost you more than a spiritually disciplined life. It will cost you the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace. It will cost you the the gifts of the Holy Spirit, power through your ministry to others. It will cost you the presence and the power and the peace of God when hard times hit your life. So you're sowing, even when you're doing spiritual disciplines, you're, you're sowing seeds so that you can reap a harvest. So do it bountifully. So this is the, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Here's the next one, do it strategically. Look at verse seven. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. When you think of giving, don't just think of your money, think of your time, your talents. But notice this, if you ever go to a place, if you've ever been in a church before, and I can honestly say for 31 years, we've never done this, we've never passed a plate. And so I've been in places where they would beat the sheep. 
and, and try to motivate you through fear and pride. And it says right here in this verse, don't, don't give then. If, if you're giving reluctantly or under compulsion, he doesn't want you to give out of those motivations. Don't give. Don't give. That's biblical. Even if here you're feeling like it's, you're feeling reluctant, it's under compulsion, then don't give. It's the wrong reason for giving. But each one must give as he has decided in his heart. You need to be strategic. It says in Ephesians 5, 15 through 17, be very careful then in how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. So how can I live God's will for my life? How can I, I be strategic in the use of my time and my talent and my treasure? That's the idea here. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. So I, to do that, I need to understand two ideas, boundaries and margin. You guys know what boundaries and margin is? You need to have this. So I, I have to have, I need good boundaries and margin in my life or I won't have anything to give. Boundaries and margin. Boundaries is learning when to say yes and how to say no in order to take control of your life for God's glory. So you can't say yes to everything. There's a few folks here that would say yes to everything. My mom is one of those. She says yes to everything, okay? She's just like, oh, okay, mom, you gotta learn to say no sometimes. That's my mom. She does that, she's extremely generous. And yes, yes, yes. And, um, and so uh, you can't say yes to everything and you shouldn't say no to everything either. There's some things that God wants you to be involved in. And so you need to be strategic in that. I didn't understand that early on in ministry, and I found myself right on the edge most of the time. I had no margin and no boundaries. I was saying yes to anything and everything that was coming my way, and I found myself right on the edge. You guys know what it means to be on the edge of the cliff? It doesn't take much to push you over, and it didn't take much to push me over. Well, I was just like, oh, I'm ready to get out of this. I can't do this anymore. Of course you can't because you don't have good, you're not strategic in what I've given you, Pastor Ray. He doesn't call me Pastor Ray. God doesn't. <laughs> he just calls me Ray. He says, you need to be more strategic. And you're, you're working for your identity, not from your identity. That's your problem. And I had to learn that early on. I said, wait a minute. My identity is already set in him. What am I trying to achieve here? That should come out of an abundance and an overflow. And so that's part of boundaries and margin. Boundaries is learning when to say yes and how to say no in order to take control of your life for God's glory. Margin is the space between my load and my limits. Living with margin is not using up all I have but reserving some of my time, energy, and resources for the unexpected. And, and this is especially true during our times of extreme inflation and gas prices going through the roof. We've been even rethinking our whole vacation this summer because of the gas prices. I don't want to spend $1,000 on fuel just to get to California this summer, okay? Just to get there, okay? I mean, it almost seems like that, but, but you, so you've got you to be strategic in this. You've got to be smart with what God has given you. And, and let me just talk about finances here just for a minute. I've got, uh, and I've taught this in the past, it's been a while. You need to apply the five biblical principles of wise financial management so that you can have good boundaries and have margin when it comes to your finances. But you need to apply this also to your time and your talents too. But here they are, let me read them off to you here really quickly. You need to have a budget. A budget is telling your money where, where you want it to go rather than finding out later where it went. 
and you do it based on, I need to spend this much to, for my home, my housing, this much for my car, this much for my food, this much for my health. So you, that way you can itemize, work through that. But along with the budget, you also need to have good record keeping because every time you stop by that little fun place, that coffee shop, that local coffee shop where you spend that $15 a day on that drink, that coffee drink, it's probably not that expensive, but, it, but over time, it, Oh, it, it gets pretty expensive, and then you're wondering, where did that $200 go? Well, if you had good records, you would know. You just need, gotta be wise. So you got budget, record keeping, and oh, by the way, you need to have true wealth. You need to understand that happiness is not one purchase away as the billion dollar industry of commercialism tries to convince you of. So when you understand that your sense of security, identity, and satisfaction is in Christ, it will give you, here's the fourth characteristic self-control. So when you understand true wealth, you'll have self-control and you won't have impulsive, compulsive spending habits trying to fill a void inside of you that you should have already had filled in Christ Jesus. Does that make sense? So just practical stuff here. This is what the Bible teaches. These five uh, biblical principles of wise financial management are found in the book of Proverbs, by the way. And so you've got budget, record keeping, true wealth, self-control, and then of course, generosity because there's blessing in generosity. And so what I've taught for years is 10-10-80 rule. So when you get paid, your first 10% goes where? It goes to God. It's called tithing. The Bible's very clear about that. The second 10% goes where? To you. And you store that up in your bank account, and you need to have at least three to six months, maybe a year of resources stored up because you may lose your job. You're going to have your car break down. You might need a new roof on your house. Any number of things, you're not gonna be caught off guard, you're gonna have the resources to drop on. Not only that, you can draw from those resources because you're also supposed to give over and above, or you wanna give over and above just a, a, a tithe, but you wanna give offerings. There's plenty of opportunities for offerings. Offerings is over and above your tithe and you give to uh, like the Dream Center, a group just built out a room over there for the Dream Center. They, they, they gave their money to that. Many of you give, yeah, praise God. They just dedicated the room yesterday. I probably saw it online, them praying over the room. Fantastic. So many of you give generously, not only to this church, but also to offerings, to missionary efforts. One of the efforts that you guys are stepping up to uh, recently, and I, I really appreciate that, is we're wanting to pay the debt off here. And it's through our Dare You to Move campaign, pay the debt off. We pay it off early. We save literally hundreds of thousands of dollars that we can put that money into ministry. So it's really a positive thing. By the way, I'm not talking about money because we're in desperate need of money. This has been perhaps one of the best years ever financially here at Desert Breeze because you guys are generous, because you guys are learning the principles. We've never passed a plate in 31 years, but it's evident that you guys understand the generous love of God and you're loving generously through your time, talent, and treasure. It's absolutely amazing. It's stunning. I have a front row seat. I'm participating in it with you. My parents taught me tithings, offerings, and then alms is also when you give to the poor. You help people out maybe in your small group that are struggling financially. And you, the group gets together, gets some money together, and they help that person out. We have a benevolence fund. We have a food pantry here weekly. We serve probably 100 plus cars that come through our parking lot and serve them faithfully. I'm telling you, God's blessing us powerfully, and we're blessing a lot of people through this. Praise God. Praise God for what he's doing here. It's absolutely amazing. And you guys know that there is blessing and generosity. You start giving, he gives back to you. You become a river rather than a reservoir of his, of his resources. And so that's, that's important to keep in mind. By the way, so the 10, 10, 80, you're living on the 80. God can make your 90% go further than your 100%. 
I've seen that. Here's the next one. Give cheerfully. Give cheerfully. Verse 7, for God loves a cheerful giver. So he says, uh, he says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. The word cheerful is a fascinating word. In the Greek, it's hilaros, where we get our word hilarity. It means cheerful, joyous, prompt to do anything. So here's the idea, that when you understand the grace of God, you're just looking for opportunities to be able to bless someone else. It's like, whoa, another opportunity to give. <laughs> That's hilarity. That's what he says, cheerful giver. Oh, my goodness. I get another opportunity to bless somebody with the grace of God. Woo, count me in. That's me. You get the idea with 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8, when, when Peter's talking to second-generation Christians, and he says, though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you have not seen him now, you believe in him and are filled with an indescribable and indestructible joy. You have a joy in your heart you can't even put words to. And in fact, there's no amount of suffering and difficulties that can ever take that joy from you. That's what he's talking about there. And that's that cheerful generosity. Love is the overflow of joy in Christ that generously gives of your time, talents, and treasure for the spiritual, emotional, relational, and physical needs of others. So here's a question for you. I know many of you are doing this. How are you contributing to God's work? That's the third G, giving. So if you're walking with God, living his word, genuine growing, you're going to be giving and going. You're going you're to you're contribute to God's work, and you're going to want to make an impact in this world. That's that fourth G of going. How are you doing that? In what tangible ways are you getting involved with that? And then you give expectantly. Look at verse 8. Here's, here's the verse. Here's my second, second favorite of these four verses. And I'm going to quote it from NIV. This is how it goes. So think about this. So you know the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that though he is rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so through his poverty we might become rich. How are we rich? Right here. So you got 2 Corinthians 8, 9, and now 9, 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. He used the word abound a couple times. I, I was quoting it from the NIV, not from the ESV that's up on the screen. But, but the idea is abound is a river overflowing its banks. God's going to overflow his banks in such a way to you. He's going to pour into your life so then your life can be an overflow of his grace to other people's lives. Luke 6, 38, given it will be given to you Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. God's presence in your life will empower you to be what he wants you to be, to do what he wants you to do. Look at Randy Alcorn's quote right here at the very end. The more you give, the more it comes back to you because God is the greatest giver in the universe and he won't let you outgive him. Go ahead, try, see what happens. Is that great? That's 100% that's, that's right on. I've lived that, and many of you are living that. Next weekend, God's amazing promises for when you feel like quitting. We're going to look at Isaiah 40. They that wait upon the Lord shall be renewed with strength. That's the verse we'll be looking at. I'll be up front at the end of the service along with any available elders this morning. If you're new, we'd love to meet you. If you need prayer, we'd love to pray with you. If you want to commit your life to Christ, oh my goodness, I'd love to bring you into the family here this morning. If you have any questions about what we talked about this morning, we'd love to answer those questions for you also. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? So, Father God, we are amazed that you, the creator of the universe, loves us unworthy sinners by sending your son to die in our place for our sins to make us your dearly loved children. We're amazed by that. We have been generously loved by you. Therefore, we can and will love generously with our time, our talent, 
and treasure. May we do it bountifully, strategically, cheerfully, and expectantly, all for your glory. In Jesus' beautiful and glorious name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. Love you guys.